Hello, Nick, you there? Oh, yep, I am. All right. Well, I'm calling from the lower 48. That's what us Alaskans call it. And you are up in far north. So there may be a little bit of a delay, but technology is amazing nowadays. Um, I appreciate you meeting, meeting with me, man. I know you're a busy man. Yeah, no it it took, a, took a couple of, of appointments to get there. And uh, one of the appointments, it was one of those things like I got a no call, no show. And I'm like, that's not like Nick. And then I found out that his mother had thrown him an impromptu birthday party. <laughs> there's there's no way I'm gonna come down on you and your mama. You know what I mean for for yeah, yeah. shooting priorities. <laughs> what, what mom wants, mom gets. So oh yeah, well a happy mom makes her happy everybody. So I'm not gonna get in the way of that. And happy birthday by the way. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um. Well, Nick Harvey, I'm I'm so appreciative that you're willing to come on my show. Uh, this is the Riff with Ian Foster. And Nick Harvey spent 10 years on the Nome Police Force. Um, and I worked closely with law enforcement during my time doing child protective services work. I did that for two years. And so um, we interfaced at, at one of the hardest times to interface, at, and that's two or three or four in the morning. Um, dispatch would um, give me a call, and, and I'd have to go out to a situation to figure out what to do with a kiddo when parents... Um, we're not able to care for kiddo or when kiddo was, you know, not in an age that they could care for themselves and there were no parents to be found um, or, or any, any sort of situation that child protective services gets involved. And so I would um, go out to these calls and, you know, Nick was dealing with the criminal element of whatever was going on. And then I was dealing with, you know, the kiddos and, you know, adults and babies are crying very difficult times. And, um, you know, you dealt with that a lot, man. That's, those are, you know, doing that kind of work, that's dog years. And it's never, it's never anything that, uh, you know, the general public doesn't really have an idea of what really goes on behind closed doors. But when you're put into the position that both you and I have, have been in in the past when I'm dealing with that stuff, you know, it's, uh, it is extremely difficult to, to watch that kind of thing unfold. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into more of that in a minute. I want to kind of pick your brain on what it's actually like, you know, day in the life stuff and, and what it actually, you know, strategies you have to, uh, process what you're experiencing, things like that. But um, backing up just a little bit, um, how did you get to Nome? I grew up in Nome. Uh, my parents moved up here when I was two years old, been here ever since. And the only time I spent out of, outside of the state was when I went to college. And then uh, after college, I married my high school sweetheart and we lived in Oregon for about five years and had enough of making, you know, the uh, top ramen dinners and going paycheck to paycheck. So we, uh, we decided it was, you know, it was time to move home. We could make better money and be around family. So mm-hmm. we moved back in 2008 and been been home ever since. Uh, let me ask you a technical question. Since you're a, a lifelong um, person from Nome, do you call yourself a Nomi or a Nomite? Or what's the technical always, word for that? I've always heard it as Nomite. Okay. All right. But I, I think still, like, in this politically charged climate that we're in, it, it would be okay for me to call people my nomies, right? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely got the uh, definitely got the more hip vibe to it than no mic. So yeah, I'd, I'd be for it. <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you. We have Nick Harvey, former law enforcement officer. I can call people nomies, and it's not offensive. Okay, um, how do you get how do you get your start in law enforcement? 
Um, I moved back home in 2008, like I said, and, uh, you know, I kind of took some time off to spend time with my dad going out in the country and, you know, shooting, you know, all kinds of outdoor activities just to kind of unwind and kind of take back in the, uh, the lovely countryside that we have access to up here. And, um, yeah, you know, my wife bad, yeah. being my sugar mama. So you know, it was time for me to go to work. I had to put in, uh, put in an application with TSA and the known police department as a dispatcher, uh, right around the same time. Um, the position that was open for dispatch apparently was filled without the chief's knowledge. And I was informed of that, you know, when right around the time he was going to bring me in to hire me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so the TSA application went forward. I was set to do a uh, um, face-to-face interview with one of the people from Fairbanks, and they were taking forever getting over here. And I was walking through Hanson's, one of our local stores, a Safeway, and uh, the chief at the time comes up to me and is like, hey, are you still looking for a job? I'm like, well, yeah, actually I am. He's like, all right, well, the dispatch supervisor is sitting over at the station right now. Go ahead over there and just kind of set something up. So went over, talked to him a little bit, and... uh you know, made a made an appointment for the next morning and sat down, and talked with them for probably uh, probably a good two hours. And him and another dispatcher that were present, and he's like, "Well, as far as I'm concerned, you got the job." And uh, so I started that next week, and you know, they uh, did dispatch for about nine months. And then um, after a bunch of haranguing from the officers that were working at the time, asking me to come over to the other side, which I didn't really have a, much of a desire to do. You know, it wasn't like the, uh, you know, the stereotypical calling type type situation for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I did a ride along and I was like, you know what? Yeah, I could do this. And so did about two and a half months of FTO prior to the Academy and then went to the 16 week Academy down in Sitka for the troopers. And, uh, yeah, kind of worked my way up from there. Isn't that cool how things work out? You know, Garth Brooks had a song, Unanswered Prayers, you know, and he was referring to a girl, but I think he could very easily have been singing about unanswered jobs, <laughs> like the jobs oh, you sure. apply for Absolutely. that, you know, they never call and you're like, why not? And then you get the job that you actually needed, even though you didn't, you know, you didn't even know that at the time. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you transitioned from dispatch to being a law enforcement officer. You, you mentioned that you didn't feel that as a calling, but it was something that you kind of, you, you went into. Did that affect the way that you actually viewed your police work? Cause I know some guys, I, I've, I've known a lot of different officers now and there's a lot of different paradigms. I mean, you have the guys that are, that are very aggressive and they have their place on the force. Like you don't want a, a timid guy going into a, a, a standoff with, you know, actively armed people that are about to, you know, blow up so i mean you have to have but that being said um i mean in your own experience of yourself and an observation of your peers was that um you know going into it gradually instead of like as a calling did that affect the way that you viewed your work um i don't think it necessarily had that view i mean you know my my dad who was uh you know he was pretty influential with me actually entering this profession you know he said that doing this job in this town you know gnome is its own microcosm as you well know um mm-hmm. you know it's not uh it's not the you know high speed low drag gunfights and and uh car chases up here you know we it's a lot of alcohol involved issues it's a lot of uh domestic violence issues but you're also dealing with for the most part a known contingent of the society so you know by the time that I left the department, you know, I could tell, you know, some of the new guys that were on would come to me and be like, oh, hey, I'm looking for this guy. And just based on the description, I could tell them who they were, where they lived, who they were dating, 
Um, so you, you kind of gain that familiarity that, uh, you know, it, it makes, it makes the job easier in a sense, but it also kind of makes it harder because then you're, you're dealing with the same people over and over again. And, you know, if obviously they're getting, uh, arrested or other type of punitive measures, then that's going to kind of shorten the temper, so to speak, when it comes to dealing with them on subsequent occasions. So, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many aspects to that. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of bias that's associated with that. Cause you, if you've already dealt with somebody, I mean, you're supposed to be fairly, you know, unbiased as far as like just processing what the information is. But if you've already dealt with somebody, you've already had a negative or a positive experience, you know, there's, there's certain aspects to that. There's also the aspect that people don't understand about small towns. Nome is a town of 3,500 people. And I know people on the podcast have heard this before, but I can't stress this enough. I mean, eight years after I worked in child protective services, I still see someone at the grocery store at least once a day. Whenever I go to the grocery store, I see someone at least once that I dealt with on an investigation as a child protective services officer. And I was only there for two years. And what's that like interfacing, like playing softball with guys you've arrested? What's the dynamic there? You know, for me, it was the manner in which you, you approach the job. So my, you know, like you mentioned, there's, there's some folks that, that enter law enforcement that have a more, you know, typical a personality where they are, um, you know, aggressive if you, for lack of a better term, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was one of those things that, you know, I I went into it with uh, with a, a nugget that one of the older officers and more tenured uh, at the time when I first started, he's like, listen, approach determines response. If you come at these people like an a-hole, you're going to get that 10 times in return. Goes, but mm-hmm. if you walk in and you could do, you know, address them as you would, you know, and, and nine times out of 10, my, my, uh, my, uh, uh, greeting to them is, Hey, either what's going on or how's it going? You know, it was never yeah. like you sit down and, you know, immediately bark in orders. And that, that was a very successful tact for me to take. And, you know, over the last shoot, uh, five, six years, I don't remember the last time I had to get into a scuffle with somebody just because if you treat somebody with the respect, you know, yeah, they're doing bad things. That's, that's part of the, part of the, the whole thing of being a cop is you're not dealing with people on their best day. But they're still people. You still need to treat them with the respect, you know, and I found that to be an extremely successful way to do that because then, you know, going back to your point with seeing everybody around town that you've dealt with, um, they know it's not personal. And I tell them that as much when I throw the cuffs on them. It's like, look, dude, you know what, what's going on. You know what was wrong. I'm, du- I'm stuck in the position of, you know, I, I wasn't here when it happened more often than not. And, you know, I'm going off of, based on, you know, either side, like say a domestic, you know, either side and it's a he said, she said, so you take into account their stories, physical injuries, you know, there's a bunch of different um, criteria that you need to use to make that decision on who's going to jail because in a domestic there, it's a mandatory arrest. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I just took to the point there, I took to started asking like, you know how this works, you know, this isn't like a, Oh yeah, well, you know, I smacked her, but hey, give me a break. You know, it's, I'd be breaking the law if I don't take you to jail. Yeah, I know. And you know, I've never, I've never had a negative contact with somebody I've arrested um, out in public. You know, more often than not, they come up to me. Oh, hey, are we? Hey, I haven't been drinking for two weeks. Hey, great man, happy to hear it. Keep it up. You know, and, that's crazy. And, that's a that's a crazy factoid to to share, man. Congratulations, that's huge. Because. 
I know your guys' schedule, man. And I know, I know that, I mean, for the last, I don't know, two or three years that you were on the floor. So I don't know if you, you guys really were able to even take vacation time. Like you were just chronically understaffed. So that lens, yeah, having over the that lens to being tired, stressed, dealing with all sorts of crazy situations. And that's only if you're doing the job, you're a human, you have a, a you know, a life outside of the job, no matter, you know, who knows what those stresses are, but yeah, going into those situations and, um, you know, batting a thousand or real close to a thousand. That's impressive, man. Yeah. And that's, that was always the, the litmus test that I told uh, any of the new people that I trained coming in. It's like, look, you know, it's not, uh, you know, from people from the outside looking in, it looks like an adversarial relationship, but honestly, I mean, with how often you're dealing with these folks, um, that are breaking the law, you know, it, it would behoove you to build a rapport and to be on good terms, even if you have to take them to jail every now and again. And, mm-hmm. you know, some folks take that advice, some don't. And, um, and more often than not, the folks that don't, you see a, a much less, uh, favorable view in total when it comes to, you know, dealing with folks outside of, you know, the scope of their duties. Yeah. Um, I have another friend, uh, you know, Casey Johnson, we went on that motorcycle ride this summer and he was on the force too. And, and you and he both have, uh, um, I mean, you handle business when you need to, but you're not a, a personalities. Um, you, you have a softer approach to it. Uh, officer Uktuk also, um, I have a lot of respect for how he went about things. And, um, how did you develop your, your voice? I'm curious about that because, um, police, there's certain organizations, um, police, military, like football teams, there's certain organizations that, um, that have powerful cultures that generally speaking develop into a type cultures. And there's a purpose for that. Um, but for, and, and I don't have a, I'm not necessarily an a type either. I can, I'm actually an introvert. I can, I can talk extrovertedly, but it's, it's not my home base, you know, anyway, um, and so I've, I've dealt with a lot of A-type personalities and, and that's not me. That's not you. That's not Casey. Um, but your voice is super, anyway, it's been harder for me to develop my voice, um, just because of that. Um, I'm curious about how you developed your voice. Did you feel any pressures to develop a different voice when you talk about the way that you view your work? Yeah. When I was going through training, uh, you know, you go through three months of, of field training and during that time you have, you know, established officers that are trying to kind of, uh, basically you take from the three officers that, that train you, you kind of go, okay, you know, I like how he did that. Or, you know, I don't like how he did that. And you just kind of take that and make your own amalgamation of how you're going to conduct business. Um, myself, you know, for the most part, um, my, my trainers with the, I had one trainer who was very a type, very, you know, you need to be strong, authoritative. You need to be, you know, that type. Um, I had one that was kind of in between and one that was more on the, you know, calm, cool, collected side. So, you know, watching Mm -hmm. and again, kind of taking in that empirical data of watching people's reactions to different approaches that did a lot to kind of steer my direction in the way that I dealt with people just for the fact that I saw what worked. Um, you know, I don't, I didn't get into police work to fight with people, you know, that, that, that is a necessity at times, but it's not the end goal. And, you know, it's like if I can get the job done and I don't have to wrestle around with somebody and dirty up and, you know, rip my uniform and hurt myself or them, hey, man, that's a win. So, yeah. you know, looking at it just from that respect was enough for me to go, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna lean more towards this direction. And, and there were some officers that gave me a lot of flack for how I dealt with people. And, um, you know, the, one of the bigger aspects is officer safety, you know, how you 
uh, present yourself. And more often than not, when I go into a house, you know, from uh, another officer's viewpoint, it may look like, well, I'm very lackadaisical. Yeah, and I was doing that purposefully because I knew that, you know, you come in there and you stand and you're kind of rigid and, you know, the way that that presents itself versus, you know, having one hand up on the counter and, you know, kind of just sway mm-hmm. to one side. Looks like I'm relaxed and kind of like, hey, you know, he's not coming in here to try and, you know, mess mess stuff up. That's He's trying to figure out what's going on. And, yeah, you know, that, that to me, that, that worked the best. And um, and I got the gift of gab. I can talk to people. I'm, I'm kind of like you. I'm an introvert, but I can talk when I need to. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you spend an extra couple minutes and talk to folks rather than demanding and, and you know, you deal with the to- intoxicated people, they are not processing stuff the same way that a sober person would. So to expect them at the drop of a hat and one time telling them what they need to do to react to that is ignorant in my mind. So, yeah. you know, giving them that extra time and saying, hey, man, no, look, this is what we need to do. No, 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 no. We need to do this, you know, that type of approach and giving them the time to actually comply. You know, if they're being passively resistive and going, well, I don't want to go. Okay, well, I understand that, but you have to. This isn't an option. Um that's always, like I said, that's worked best for me, and and the success rate for it was uh, it showed. So, what I tried to kind of give to the the other officers coming on, and you know, like I said, they can they can take it or leave it. It's up to them to kind of make their own way in that respect. But you know, you try. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing that posture. There's so much that goes into posture, tone, eye contact, things like that. I remember reading a book back in the like early college um, the, about the horse whisperer, and he talked about how he he didn't even call it breaking horses. He called it inviting horses to join up, and he was able to get a horse saddle ready faster than anybody on the planet. It was within a couple of hours, you know, from completely wild to saddle ready. It, it was an amazing process, and he did it non-verbally, so he was communicating with the horse in a way the horse could understand. And if you've ever had dogs, you, you see that same thing. My my buddy has this like miniature little purse dog, but when that little purse dog, that all of that eight pounds of fury sees a stranger come in the house, <laughs> that dog postures up as big as it, you know, it's eight inches of height will allow. And he comes bounding into the living room with its fiercest yip. And that's a posture thing, man. And I mean, every male on the planet, every female, I mean, we know what that means. Like that dog is trying to establish some sort of dominance and it's like eight pound sphere of the universe. So you can't tell me that that doesn't apply to the work that you do, especially when people become a little more primal, which is, you know, what the situation when people are intoxicated, they're just reacting. They don't really know what they're doing. And so if you come in in a primal way, square, hard tone, you know, establishing the boss, you know, yourself as the boss. I mean, you already have a badge and a gun. What more do you need? So it's like you, but then you add that extra layer of, you know, the, the actual primal dominance. I mean, there's only two ways that can go. It can go into immediate submission or it can go into um, aggression. And, and, and I've, and I've seen that. So I appreciate you mentioning that as far as posture goes, it's super valid. And just, you, you can approach people in a way that, you know, pushes people in a certain direction, or you can let them make their choices. So, yeah, and 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 there's been times too where I've had to had to actually apply force and use it, and then immediately when you know it's you know when it's time to go, it's time to go, and then once the once they're you know subdued, then it's like you know I, I just flat out asked them, man, why'd you make me do that? 
and nine times out of ten, they're like, oh, no, you know, either that or some variation <laughs> of that was stupid, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, just talking to them in that way, then, you know, it's not like you can't take it personal. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. No, I've been in situations like that, too. I've worked with uh, in youth facilities, you know, spent about 10 years off and on doing that. And I, I only had to restrain a couple of kids. Like These are kids that escalated themselves. It was all of a sudden it was a violent situation and you just have to protect the kid and other people. But I remember processing with those kids that situation. And I remember a couple of times the kids laughing at like just having a full out brawl and getting restrained. Like there, there was a certain, we had a, enough of a relationship. We could kind of like process like, Whoa, that was crazy. You know? And they said, yeah, that was crazy. Sorry. You know? And so in that moment, if you do things or say things that, you know, people can't forget, you know, you create an enmity there that doesn't necessarily need to be there, even as you're doing your job and as you're in, initiating like, like full control, you know, over somebody. Yep. Um, so I wanted to transition a little bit. Um, as an officer, you were there for the rollout of Senate Bill 91, and then its subsequent, um, essentially, amendment, Senate Bill 54. Um, what were some of the? What was the initial rollout like for the average police officer in Nome? Uh, it was it was clunky, poorly thought out, and the uh, yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of for. Uh, yeah, it was just very clunky. It was kind of brought forth after the legislation was passed, and then it was kind of like tossed to the tossed into the the fryer and going, well, figure it out. Um, us as the known police department, um, we had kind of kind of a link up with the troopers in terms of you know the the differences to like say the decriminalization of violating conditions of release, um, and uh, you know that process came from the troopers because obviously they had you know a deeper um, staffing level that allowed them to kind of have the you know certain folks that could go through comb through and figure out exactly what this you know this change entailed and how it was going to be implemented um, so in the interim us trying to figure it out between you know we we're getting hate mail from the court from the DA and because some guys were getting it, some guys weren't, and, you know, obviously if you were, you know... When, sorry, when you say some guys, you're talking about specific officers, or or what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the any any officers that have been there for any length of time that were used to the way that things were, um, like myself included, um, you know, it was very hard to, uh, you know, go from, okay, this guy is on conditions of release, well, that's its own crime previously. So if they had a condition saying they couldn't drink and you come up to them and see them drunk, well, they're doing that in your presence. So you don't need, don't need a warrant or anything like that. You can arrest them on the spot. It got to the point where it became just a citable offense. So they would just get a citation, kicked loose, and then they'd have to go see the court, uh, you know, the judge on the specific court date. Um, you know, the the different changes to the uh, amounts for say criminal mischief uh, that caused a lot of uh, a lot of uh, growing pains as well because you know we're all used to most of us had that stuff memorized to where we know okay this specific item is worth this much so we know that's broken so it's this level of crime so that changed um, yeah it was like I said it was not a not a fun time 
Yeah. How do you think the rollout could have been handled differently? I mean, is it, is it a PowerPoint issue or is it like some of, as you were talking, I just couldn't help but like the, just think that changing organizational culture is so difficult. It doesn't matter if you're known police. It doesn't matter if you, if you're general electric, it's very difficult to change. I mean, even your family to Pete's sake, like you should be on. And I think, I think officers are even more so. I mean, you know, the, they're adverse to change. It's, it's, uh, you know, as, as was evident when this legislation was rolled out and implemented, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, uh, um, yeah, I mean, even, even the fact of taking some class C felony offenses that were now, uh, you know, the peace officer would be permitted but not required to issue a citation for class C felony offenses. Uh, unless there was a danger to others or something along those lines, you know, yeah. that stuff blew my mind to, to have somebody with a felony offense and you can go, eh, there's a citation, you know, like, who it, 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 it was very counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, we go back to the bias issue. Um, if there's too much latitude in the discretion that officers have to issue or to not issue a citation, um, it's it's hard to imagine a situation that wouldn't create some sort of bias in some sort of way. Either it's like a bias that's too harsh towards people you know, or a bias that's not harsh enough to people you know, or um, if you just have just this broad discretion to issue or not um, in a situation. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the rollout could have been handled differently. How do you think it could have been handed, handled better? Um, at least having, uh, it, you know, to me, at least from being a boots on the ground guy, it, it seemed as though, you know, the legislation was passed and then it was like, well, these are the changes that are going to be made. There was never any thought from, you know, taking that legislation and how it was going to be implemented. So even just having, Kind of, uh, um, I, I hate PowerPoint presentations as much as <laughs> I have some type of, you know, centralized, like, this is what this changes and have a list and go through even having documentation. Like, you know, we have our little law books that we would carry and, uh, that have a list of all the citations. Well, we didn't get updated books that reflected the changes until almost a year later because they only do those yearly. So even wow. something simple like that to having a quick reference guide and saying, okay, this is the threshold for, you know, like the um, felony theft threshold went from $750 to 1000 You know, doesn't seem like much, but if it's the difference between charging somebody with a misdemeanor and a felony, it's like I'd like to be sure about what the number is because I don't want to look like a, a bonehead when I send a complaint up to the DA and he's like, you know, why are you charging them with a felony when it's a misdemeanor amount? Um, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's the worst feeling to do something that, I mean, you're exercising total control, you know, I mean, that's what the long arm of the law means. And if you're exercising total control in a, well, I think this is accurate way. I mean, that's, that causes awful repercussions up and down the system. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, you are charged with the, uh, you know, very large responsibility with making sure that your your information and the way the information that you're using to make those decisions are accurate. And you know, that's not something, at least I'm speaking for myself, that I take took lightly. Um, you know, it, 
you have a job to do, but I'm not going to, you know, you have some, some officers that, you know, they, you know, it's all about felonies, felonies, felonies. It's like, okay, well, that's dumb in my opinion, but, um, you know, it's, to me, it's a fair implementation of, of, uh, enforcing the law and, you know, charging correctly that, that, it's paramount because if I was in a similar situation, I wouldn't want a cop winging it and going, well, close enough to a felony. Yeah, have fun at the grand jury. Um, that's, that's, yeah, I, that, that was not okay with me. So, yeah, I think that's where a lot of my consternation came from with it because of that, you know, because I have that need to be thorough. I, I want yeah. to make sure that that is. They're getting charged with, with, with what they did or alleged to have done and not taking any platitudes with it and taking it up a notch when it didn't need to be. Absolutely. No, I totally get it. I mean, there's so many, geez, I, I'm sure we could talk about this for another couple of hours. Um, so I, when, as I've been studying this issue, you know, you, you, I, I go from macro to micro to macro to micro, and I can't help but interject humanity into it because if you just see things in through a statistical lens, it's very clear we need to do something like Senate Bill 91. Um, the statistics are that in the last, from about 1975 until about 95, in that 20-year period, our prison population in the United States of America quadrupled. So from 1925 to 1975, it basically stayed, you know, about the same per capita. But then 75 to 95, we had a, a major drug epidemic and a crime epidemic during the 80s. And so a lot of that was linked to that. And, and you know, so whatever, you know, there's a crime epidemic. We put more people in jail, whatever. Um, and there's all sorts of conversations we can have about that process. But the really interesting thing that I've discovered is that from 91 or 92, to the current time, crime has actually decreased by 50% in the United States of America, but prison populations have only decreased maybe 10%. And so crime is, has dropped considerably, but prison populations have not dropped, um, you know, in relation to it. And so we, we've essentially just figured out ways to keep people in jail. And so um, Senate Bill 91 was one of the impetus or part of the impetus to, to bring that about was that we need to do something about it. And so, um, you know, it was the first try. It passed by an overwhelming majority. The rollout, as you say, it, it could have been handled differently. Um, and by the time you kind of got an idea of, you know, what was going on, um, they made some amendments with Senate Bill 54. What was the rollout like that with 54, was it different than 91? Did it just add more confusion? Did it actually clarify some things? What was uh, 54 um, like for you guys? 54 wasn't really, uh, it wasn't as, uh, didn't have as big of an impact because the, the things that had changed, there were only a few that actually affected what a, an officer would be doing on the street. Um, you know, the, the recriminalization of violating conditions of release was one of them. And I know a lot mm -hmm. of, a lot of my coworkers were happy that was, that was re-implemented just because, um, with the, um, basically the DOC here stopped taking Title 47s out of the jail. So we have, you Can know, you describe large... what that process is for the people that don't know? Sure. It, uh, you know, a Title 47 is basically if a person is, uh, incapacitated and, 
and or may cause themselves or others harm, uh, we are statutorily obligated to ensure that they are brought to a safe place. Um, more often than not, we'd like to find a family member or friends, somebody that's sober that can watch over them to ensure that they're safe. That's first option and first that that would be my first choice. Now that's different than um, suicidal, but, right? Like the the laws that govern what you do with potential suicides, or is that the same? Thing? Thing, yeah, it's under under the same thing, causing harm to themselves. Okay, okay but most of the time um, you were dealing with um, people that were in, like incapacitated due due to some sort of substance ingestion. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Sorry. Proceed. No, and uh, so. In the past, what we would do is if we were unable to find a safe place to take them, then they would be uh, brought out to the jail, uh, AMCC here, and uh, they would be held for 12 hours to ensure that they are sobered up, they're in a safe place, they're being, you know, they're being watched, um, and that they're safe. That's the biggest thing. Uh, was that a legal hold? I mean, was that a um, was that some sort of misdemeanor, or was that just like a, no, it was not a courtesy? Yeah, it's not. It's kind of like what people sometimes refer to as a drunk tank. That's essentially what it amounted to. Okay, uh, gotcha. Basically, getting someone off the street so they're not gonna, you know, either freeze in the winter. Uh, at the time, we didn't have the nest shelter, which they now have that oh, stays open overnight throughout the winter months to ensure that people do have a safe place to go. Um, mm-hmm. But when the DOC stopped taking Title 47s, then, uh, you know, Class B misdemeanors like disorderly conduct and things like that became kind of a de facto Title 47. So, you know, the uh, verbiage for it, you know, you can you can kind of articulate, you know, okay, he was causing a disturbance or he was challenging somebody to a fight. And, you know, the DA pretty much got to the point where he told us that, you know, I'm not going to prosecute these. So they kind of became... Uh, known as problem solvers. It was, you know, somebody's being, you know, a nuisance downtown and they're refusing to, you know, comply with us telling them either to go home or, you know, just stay out of trouble kind of thing. That was what we would fall back on rather than a Title 47 just to make sure that they are safe, that they're not going to be out causing problems, getting beat up or victimized or fall asleep in a snowdrift and freeze. So, yeah. Um, and and that's what we have to understand when we when we think about gnome i mean i've I've just recently spent some time in la and gnome is not la i mean we don't have sunshine all year long like you can't just sleep out in a t-shirt and just kind of get a little bit cold at night and in the winter time six months of our year is uh you know 30 degrees minus and uh meaning like less than 30 degrees so it's it's temperatures where water freezes and that's about half of our year and so sometimes we have negative 20 and in negative 20, like your nose hairs freeze, like the water in your eyes starts to freeze. Like if you have any exposed skin, it's minutes before it can start to be a, a very serious situation. And so um, when people are completely under, and I've seen this, I've seen um, intoxicated people walking down my street in t-shirts in five degree weather. And, um, yeah. you know, it, and it's scary to see that stuff. I mean, nobody likes to see that stuff. So, and you were on the front lines of that. So, yeah, there, there. Very clearly, we have to have some mechanisms as a community to be able to deal with that. Um, and Alaska generally has those, you know, similar conditions. Maybe a lot, not as severe as Nome, but you know, Anchorage deals with very severe winters. You know, most of Alaska has very severe winters. So, you know, it's something that affects all Alaskans. 
Okay, so the Senate Bill 54, um, they changed a couple of things, um, but all of a sudden you have a population that you're dealing with fairly regularly that you don't really know what to do with. Um, what did you do as a yeah. force? Um, well, the way it, the way it boiled down here re- most recently is the hospital became kind of the de facto drunk tank. Um, if somebody didn't have a place to go but hadn't committed any criminal offenses, um, we also ran into that problem where people were causing problems at the nest or day shelter. Um, they would the uh, Nestor Day Shelter would say, hey, we don't want, you know, Joe Schmo here anymore. He's causing a problem. So mm-hmm. they're, again, back out on the streets. Well, if they're so intoxicated that they are unable to care for themselves, well, we're still statutorily obligated to make sure they're safe. So the only other place that we can bring them that we can ensure that safety is to the hospital. And that was a constant, uh, for lack of a better term, pissing match between the DOC, the hospital, and with no police department stuck in the middle because we, like I said, we had the statutory obligation to make sure these folks are safe, but yeah. you know, we don't have a place to take them if they get kicked out of one of the shelters. So, yeah. you know, kind of, uh, and then, you know, of course the hospital folks, they get burned out because they don't, they've got other stuff going on. They don't want to have to babysit somebody who's intoxicated. So, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as they're able to ambulate, they're out the door. And then they're right back downtown, and they're drinking some more, and it's kind of a, a revolving door. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really tough issues. From a, um, and we're going to step back a minute now. From a, just from a human standpoint, like I've I've done some of that work before, and it's super mucky. It's it's really difficult. And I don't care what you say about self care and making sure you like you handle your business and you know, are you okay? Like, make sure you're okay. <laughs> like all that stuff. When you have a job and you go to that job for 40 or 50 hours a week in that kind of the kind of job that you were involved in there, there's just so much comes at you that it's overwhelming. I mean, I, I know most of the stories that, that were really heavy for me. I'm never going to tell those are going to go with me to the grave, not just from a professional HIPAA standpoint, but from a personal emotional standpoint i just don't want to release that emotion on someone else you know how did you deal with that how did you deal with all of that uh well for me i'm kind of a kind of a bottle of that guy which i know is uh probably the least healthy method to deal with such but um you know it was uh a lot of it had to do with kind of venting and um with us, at least law enforcement in general, you know, we're no, it's, it's, uh, fairly widely known that we got a pretty dark sense of humor. And, um, you know, if, if folks heard some of the stuff that, that, um, oh, I know. Thank goodness there's not the recorders, man. It's the same thing over at OBS. Yeah. It's just, it's laugh or cry stuff. And you try to laugh, and some of the laughs that you have are pretty, pretty off base, but you're just doing your best to deal. Yep, and that, that's the that's been the best way because I mean you know coming number one like you mentioned you can't you know for for um, confidentiality standpoint you can't I couldn't come home and vent to my wife about specifics um, but even if I could I wouldn't because number one I didn't want her to know the kind of crap I'm dealing with and number two um, you know it's not gonna she's not going to fully understand or grasp what I am. I mean, she can, in a general sense, go, oh, you dealt with this. Yeah, I understand. Whereas coworkers that have been through the, you know, the thick, thick of it with you, they know. And, yeah. you know, venting and kind of 
going back and forth with them seemed to be the best way for me to kind of help cope with that. And, uh, um, you know, it, and at least, you know, like you said, they're, they're, if you're not laughing, you're crying. That's, it's just that simple. Um, so, and I mean, that, that seemed to be my best outlet is just kind of screwing around with the guys and, you know, just kind of letting it all out and with them, with folks that can, fully sympathize with what you just went through on a, you know, whether it be a specific call, a whole shift, a week, whatever, um, you know, that tended to be the, the way that I went about it. But yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also, there's, there's those home base activities that just make us, you know, feel right in our heart and everybody has different stuff. I mean, some people are into scrapbooking. I'm into baseball. I love playing ball. And, um, in the native Alaskan population, we were just talking about this in my last podcast, uh, subsistence is a really important value. And I found that a lot of the people that I was working with that were, that were native Alaskan, that, um, when they were getting into serious breakdowns in their family, they were distancing themselves from some of their values. They weren't, they weren't berry picking as much as they used to. They weren't, um, harvesting fish anyway, but back to you, um, you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast that there were certain things that you did um, when you were uh, allowing your, your wife to be your sugar mama. And so those are some of the fun things that you did. Um, did some of those activities, um, did you, did you keep on making sure you found time for those um, as you were going through the stresses of being a police officer in Nome or did some of the, those activities suffer? Well, they definitely suffered. Um, you know, you're, you're working 12 hours a day and, you know, by the time you get home and that's, that's assuming that you get off on time. And, um, that, that was a rarity. Um, so, you know, you're working 13 and 14 hours a day. By the time you get home, you get enough time to sit down and veg out for a little bit, kind of decompress. And then, you know, before you know it, it's bedtime and they're getting it all up and doing it all over again. So, um, even on your days off, I mean, you get done with your work week where we were working, um, four on three off three on four off. And, you know, even the first day or day, day and a half to two days, um, you're just kind of, uh, my, my own experience anyway, you just veg out. You just kind of don't want to do anything. It's just like, I, I, I was essentially a hermit. You know, I didn't want to mm-hmm. go out in public. You know, I kind of have to, at work, I'd have to put on the, the professional face and smile and greet people and, you know, interact with folks. And it, it got to a point where it's like, you know, eh, yeah, I'd rather just stay home. And I'll, I'll pet my dogs yeah. and play with them and, you know, spend time with my daughter, or, you know, do whatever. But, um, you know, when it come, came time to, like, go out in public or do that kind of thing, it, it kind of kind of kept away from it if I could. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, I, I've actually studied a lot about extroversion now and just trying to understand myself and, um, and where, what, what that means. It doesn't mean that extroverts are introverts. It doesn't being an introvert doesn't mean that you can't speak or you're, you're like shy. What it means is that that's where you gain energy. So, um, like for me, I can, I can act in an extroverted way. I've, sung in front of lots of people i can public speak and i don't i'm not really scared about those things but they're they're very draining for me i'm not tony robbins i mean he seems to like become this nuclear reactor of energy when he's in front of thousands of people and i'm the opposite like it's it's very draining for me to focus and and provide that and share that much of my energy with people um so for you i mean that makes perfect sense like when you're in the public eye especially in that stressful of a way like over the weekend you had to check out that makes perfect sense, man. So that actually is one of your coping strategies, whether you knew it or not, you know? 
Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, one of the books that they, uh, my chief at the time had recommended because there was a couple times where I was uh, I had my own little situation. I you know, kind of he would allow me to vent to him, and it was not uh-huh. just a joking kind of way. Um, and yeah. he in the academy they told us to read this book called, uh, and I'm just spacing on the freaking name of it now. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it it's basically goes into how you know you need to have that outside um, hobby or what have you, and reading through this book, he describes the behavior going from hypervigilance, which, you know, is a, you know, you're always prepared for everything and, you know, you're constantly, you know, scanning and looking around and making sure Mm -hmm. that your world is safe to coming home and you kind of dip down below the normal state of people where it's kind of like, you know, half-ass paying attention, but, um, you know, you dip so far down below because you've been up at a high, high level of operation for so long that when you get home and you're in a safe place, you dip way underneath that, and you know he he started describing the behavior that most most officers exhibit after a certain amount of time on the job, and I was like, holy crap, is this guy in my living room with me right now? You know, it was yeah. to a T. Yeah. So you know, it it's definitely a known a known factor with this job, and you know, uh-huh. trying to keep on top of that is tough when. You know, like you said, you're chronically understaffed and you're, you know, it's not a job where we can just hang out the clothes sign on the shingles and be like, well, yep, it's a self-care day. And yeah, that doesn't work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to, to maintain, you know, quote unquote, a normal life, you know, when it's, yeah. you're dealing with that kind of crap and that kind of hours and yeah, it's, it's definitely tough and takes its toll significantly. Yeah. Well, that being said, I know a lot of people in the community that are very grateful uh, for the way that you went about your police work. And I've actually talked to a lot of members of the community. And, and you know, I mean, it's a small town, so it's, it's not like I'm going around gossiping. But names come up in conversation. You hear how people talk about people and, um, you know, people talk favorably of you. So that's, I think, a testament to how you went about your work. Um, one last thing, and I, we could talk about this for a long time, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. But for the rollout right now, we're in a situation as a state, uh, Senate bill 91. Some of the things worked as intended. Some did not. We've saved some money. Um, crime rates seem to be stabilizing. There's been a lot of unintended consequences though. Um, there's a lot of really polarized opinions about, about 91 and also the rollout of 54. It looks like we're headed towards some sort of adjustment. How do you think whatever adjustment that comes down the pipe, how do you think that adjustment could be rolled out better so it's a more seamless transition for DAs, law enforcement, corrections, everybody involved? How could it be handled differently this time? Like I said, I think just having having something um, that is universal, that is not uh, not left open to interpretation or, you know, kind of uh, guessing on the part of, boots on the ground as to what it entails and what it really you know amounts to for that particular does that mean like a does that mean like a, a training in conjunction with the actual rollout absolutely i mean you know you're like i said I, I, death by powerpoint is not my <laughs> my favorite thing but yeah. to have at least some guidance with that to make it absolutely clear that you know this is what this means this is what changes for this particular statute this is what you can and can't do with regard to this particular statute you know just to have it where it like i said it's universal it's not something that you know one agency is interpreting a certain way and another is interpreting a different way and you know 
lines are getting crossed and you know that that type of thing it's it's mm-hmm. it definitely needs to be um it just needs to be well organized and and the same across the board it, it just that's, yeah. i think that's the biggest thing well and maybe i mean the initial rollout of sb91 it was 120 pages and from what i understand now that i know what i know about like the the development of legislation a lot of times the legislation is sponsored but it's developed by advocacy groups. It's developed by private citizens. Sometimes it's developed by lobbies. Um, the actual development of the bill, a lot of times, it isn't actually developed by our legislation or our legislators. And so, when you get a 120-page bill, especially a small state like Alaska, most most of our senators and uh, and representatives, I mean, they have second jobs just because we don't. Pay. I think they. I think our 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 representatives make like 60 grand a year. And I mean, you can't live off of that in Alaska. So they have second jobs and they're, they're juggling a lot. And that's not to say that they they're negligent. I'm just saying like they, I don't know many that have time to actually go through 120 pages and, and maybe the knowledge base to actually understand what everything means. And so we got into a situation where we passed a bill that I think we didn't fully understand the repercussions of it. And it would have been nice if in this specific instance in the future, uh, we not we don't just pass it, but we also pass. Um, we also take into account, you know, what the rollout's going to be, and it's not just after the fact. And we hope something good happens, but we actually plan that into what the actual bill is going to be. I think that'll make it a more seamless process. Anyway, good ideas, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Um, one last question. It's kind of a silly question. Um, I was I was going to ask you a question about when you transitioned from dispatch to the beat, you know, cause you were a beat cop. And then I started wondering like, what in the hell does that even mean? Like, what is it? Where did that come from? Why do they call it a beat cop? You know? Um, my understanding of it is the, a beat is the a certain area, like in a bigger city, you would have officers that are assigned to a certain beat. So a certain neighborhood. Um, and, so the people, the boots on the ground, not administrators or folks that are sitting at the office and doing their admin things, that differentiation. I don't know if I'm sure there's probably some other uh, some other explanation that's probably a, a heck of a lot more eloquent than what I just. No, no, that's that's uh, awesome, man. Sometimes I. Bowl, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, sometimes I ask rhetorically silly questions that I don't actually want an answer. I just want to get you know whoever I'm talking to giggling but i'm glad you had an answer because i was actually curious about that that's why i didn't ask the question i was like i don't even know what that means all right cool man well, well thanks for joining me on i'm sure to have a different connotation oh i know i honestly when i start when i was thinking about that i was thinking of rodney king and i was like you know what we probably shouldn't say beat cop anymore just because that's not that kind of makes me uncomfortable yeah. my hyper vigilant of patrol unpolitically correct Un- unpolitically correctness. I'm super hyper vigilant about certain things. Anyway, Nick Harvey, thanks for joining me on the riff. Appreciate your time, man. And best of luck to you in your future problem. endeavors. I appreciate it. Yeah, have a good one. All right, you too. Bye.